declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Rob, in case you don't know me. And in case you're wondering sort of what we're talking about this morning, um, we're doing a series called Life Together. Life Together. Uh, stolen really from a famous book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. Fantastic book. If you don't know that, recommend selling all that you have and buying Dietrich Bonhoeffer Life Together. But we start off the series by saying, as we do life together as a church, um, what we should be concerned about is unity, right? A, uh, a church that is not united is a church that, well, it's not really going to be compelling to the world at all, is it? It's going to look like the world. So, and a church that is united needs to be a church that, well, actually gathers, right? Uh, if a church isn't gathering, well, a church is not a church, and so today, what we're going to talk about is not only a church that is united and a church that's regularly gathering on the Lord's Day, but a church that is committed to this thing called holiness. Holiness. Now, when I say that we're going to be talking this morning about holiness, I don't know on a rainy winter day, sitting across, looking you all in the eyes, what is going on in your heads. I wonder if for some, you think, oh man, holiness. Really? Like, you are so out of touch with the real world. This is what I was worried about coming to church. They talk about something as abstract and navel-gazing as holiness, right? Smells and bells. This is why I try to stay away from church in the first place. Holiness. Come on. Our world, if you haven't figured it out, Pastor, has some real issues going on. And there it's wintertime. People are cold. People are hungry and 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 you know, finances are on a knife's edge and marriages are on a knife's edge. People are struggling with depression and anxiety and so on and so forth. And you're gonna talk about holiness. Okay. Well, there you go, out of touch with the real world once again. Now, maybe some of you aren't that hostile. Thought, oh, geez, I don't know who that is, it wasn't me. But regardless of where you land, when it comes to the subject of holiness, we don't, we don't hear it, we sometimes sing it, but we don't hear it often in church. And I wonder sort of what space you're sitting in when I say we're going to be giving a sermon on holiness. Well, I want to let these words sort of wash over you because here's the deal. Often when people say, well, I don't really care about this, whatever, you know, holiness, whatever he's going to talk about, I'm just, you know what, I came here years ago and I just sort of ticked the box and I make sure that I'm going to go to heaven. And if he speaks about holiness, good for him, but it doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't really affect me very much. I want to read this passage to you out of this book called Faithfulness and Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And this is just striking because, yeah, I, I, I had to quote, it's a long one, but I, I've got to quote the whole thing here. So he says this. He says, 
I appeal solemnly to everyone who reads these pages. How shall we ever be at home and happy in heaven if we die unholy? Death works no change. The grave makes no alteration. Each will rise again with the same character in which he breathed his last. Where will our place be if we are strangers to holiness now? Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself, and by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures, their tastes, not your tastes, their character, not your character. How, how could you possibly be happy if you had not been half holy on earth? Now perhaps you love the company of the light and careless, the worldly-minded and the covetous, the reveler and, and the pleasure-seeker, the ungodly and the profane. There will be none such in heaven. Now perhaps you think the saints of God too strict and particular and serious. You rather avoid them. You have no delight in their society. There will be no other company in heaven. Now perhaps you think praying and scripture reading and hymn singing dull and melancholy and stupid work, a thing to be tolerated now and then, but not enjoyed. You reckon the Sabbath a burden and weariness. You cannot possibly spend more than a small part of it in worshiping God. But remember, heaven is a never-ending Sabbath. The inhabitants thereof rest nor day or night, saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, and singing the praise of the Lamb. How could an unholy man find pleasure in occupation such as this? So look, if you don't care about holiness and you don't care about the things of God, don't think for a second, don't deceive yourself that heaven would be some amazing place. Heaven would stink for you. It would not be a great place. So let J.C. Ryle's words sort of wash over you for a minute there, you see? Holiness is key. Holiness to the Lord. That's where we're headed. We need to be a church that is committed to unity and committed to gathering together and committed to God to be his treasured possession, to be his holy people here on earth, and it will be in heaven as well. So that's where we're headed. Let's, uh, let's look to the Lord now and, and ask that he would stir our affections in such a way that we would care and, and long for holiness. Let's pray. Gracious God, you know our hearts and lives like no one else. You see our thoughts and deepest longings. Lord, what we need most of all this morning is you. So Lord, in your grace, please show us that need. May we feel it and cling to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, would you grant repentance and faith today. Glorify yourself in the next 30 minutes. Show yourself to be holy. And then may we, as your people, long for holiness in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, at my house, my kids ask me, why often? So, you know, hey guys, we got to brush your teeth at night. Why? You know? Well, actually, they don't say it that way. They just go, oh, why? Well, because you don't want to get cavities, right? And you don't want to get, you know, a, 
I, I always make this drilling sound like Dennis is going to drill in your mouth. So, you know, you don't want caveats. But often, you know, as a kid, maybe, maybe you asked your parents, you know, the parents got, you got in the car and you said, um, they said, buckle up. Uh, how come or why? Well, and often it was the because I said so, right? Because I said so. And Paul has spent in a Titus chapter 2, 10 verses, instructing old blokes, young blokes, women, older women, younger women, slaves, free, sort of the gamut of people that are at this church in Crete. And it's interesting because he says, you need to do this, you need to do that. And what he could have done is said, because I say so, right? I'm an apostle after all, and on that authority, because I say so, but he doesn't. What does he say? He says, right, do this and do that, and here's the reason why. God's grace has appeared. God's grace has appeared. Do you, do you see that? Spent 10 verses laying it out to all these different people, and then finally you get to verse 11, and the grace of God has appeared. The term grace is sung. We just actually sung about God's grace, didn't we? We sing about it in this church. We, we pray. Nigel was just doing uh, some of that just now, praying, thanking God for His grace. We talk about God's grace. But the term grace assumes something. The term grace assumes that we are all sinners, doesn't it? By nature, we don't love God. We actually hate him. We're his enemies, every one of us. And because of this, God would be completely just to leave us in our sin and condemn us forever. And by the way, there is absolutely nothing in ourselves, nothing we can do to accomplish or change this situation. But God has revealed his grace by sending his son. Jesus is the one who brings God's salvation plan out of the shadows, as it were, and into full light. You know, now that it's winter time, have you noticed how dark your home is? Especially just before dawn? You know, prior to the sun rising, if, if you don't turn a light on, it's nearly impossible to see. But then all of a sudden, around, say, 6.30-ish, the sun appears, and its rays begin streaming in through your windows. That's what the grace of God does in a sinner's life. They are blind and unable to see, totally sunk in moral darkness, until the grace of God appears, and when it does, it bursts through, it becomes visible. You understand what Paul's saying right here? That this grace of God has appeared. It has broken forth like light in the morning after a dark night. And notice what God's grace does in the next part of verse 11. If you're following along there, the next part of verse 11, he says, for the grace of God, notice, has appeared. What does it do? Bringing salvation. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel, one night when Joseph was asleep? An angel appears to him. An angel says, when this baby boy is born, 
right? Mary is pregnant, and when this baby boy is born, you can't just name the child whatever you want, whatever you desire. No, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their what? Sins. Saved from sin means to be delivered from spiritual death and separation from God. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed. Can you hear that? has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, grace is God's favor, His mercy toward us, even when we don't deserve it. But listen, God's grace not only forgives, God's grace transforms his grace is meant not only to forgive us, but to change us, to renovate us, to transform us. Now, growing up in Southern California, I remember one year we had these massive storms and these torrential, you know, it's funny how weather sort of triggers memories. Have you noticed that? But seeing all the rains today, it triggered when I was a kid, we had these massive storms and these torrential rains caused by El Nino, right? And, man, homes and businesses were destroyed from extreme weather or winds or rains. Some were even damaged um, by mudslides. Go figure. There was a terrifying story of a family who encountered this. While the family was still in their home, a wave of mud tore through the house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night. The parents began to search through the darkness for their child tromping through the mud that had descended upon their whole neighborhood. They searched, dug, and called for the child throughout the long night without any result. I mean, as a father, I, I can't imagine. I have a baby right now. When morning came, a rescuer, covered in mud, came to the parents with a mud-caked bundle in his arms. It was the baby. Filthy, but still alive. You know what the mother did? She clung to her child despite its filth, washed the muck away, and determined to keep the child out of the mud in the future. Friends, when the filth of our sin was sweeping us and our helplessness to eternal death, our God covered himself in the muck of this world to rescue us embraced us despite our filth and now wants us to remain out of the mud. His grace not only saves us from sin's penalty, it delivers us from sin's power. In other words, the same grace that makes our salvation possible also instructs us on how we are to live. I mean, is that not what he says in verse 12? Check out the words in the beginning. Training us. Can you see that? training us. That's referring to God's grace. Essentially, grace is our teacher. Grace is our instructor. But what exactly does it teach? It's simple. 
how to say no to sin and yes to holiness, how to live a holy life in the here and the now, in this present age. Look with me in Titus. Come again there, Titus 2. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see how the gospel is the foundation, you see. Where grace reigns, grace trains. Where grace reigns, grace trains. Can you see there's both negative and positive statements in this passage? First, he calls us to renounce or reject two things, notice. Ungodliness, which means a lack of reverence or devotion to God. And we're to deny not only that, but worldly desires. Or as some translations put it, worldly lusts or cravings. This has the idea of an excessive yearning for what God has forbidden. Now, you're sitting in church, so you're probably not surprised to hear that. In fact, you probably expect that. You probably expect to hear, well, we're not supposed to have these ungodly lives. We're not supposed to have, you know, these wrongful desires. Probably referring to sexual lust there, more than likely. We're not supposed to... So you're probably not... You know, when you hear that, you're probably like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's not... Right, that's not, I mean, I didn't, ex I'm not, that's not surprising. But if you're going to follow through with this and be shaped by God's grace, be trained by God's grace, the society at large, they're going to think you're a bit bonkers. Because why would you deny yourself anything? Why would you deny yourself something that makes you happy and gives you purpose and makes you feel good, right? Don't, don't deny those things. Indulge in those things. Francis Schaeffer once said this, we are surrounded by a... And he, he wrote this in the 20th century, right? He says, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. When we are surrounded by this sort of mentality, then suddenly, to be told that in the Christian life, there's to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self. It must seem hard. And if it does not feel hard to us, we are not really letting it speak to us. We have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Any concept of a real no is avoided as much as possible. Absolutes of any kind, ethical principles, everything must give in to affluence and selfish personal peace. He wrote that in the 20th century, but is that not just as relevant today? You know, I, I, was a, I had a chance to serve, I lived in Hawaii on the island of Oahu for 10 years, and I was a youth pastor, and we used to take a bunch of kids to a Christian camp. And it was a real highlight, and I remember these boys... These boys were rough, rough boys. Um, you know, straight in, in and out of jail. Their dads, most of their dads were in jail. And, and they, they knew how to do a few things. They knew how to fight. They knew how to sell drugs. 
and speak like sailors. <laughs> That's about kind of all, all they had to know how to do. And, and here's the deal. By the grace of God, many of these boys were saved at this camp. And do you know at this camp, they had us memorize this passage here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, right? Trains us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright, self-controlled lives. I can still hear them in their Hawaiian pigeon. <laughs> it's still in my head. Oh, brother, grace of God, it teaches us to say, you know, yeah, I won't do it for you guys. But um, I can still hear that. But it wasn't just like a fun thing to sort of rattle back and forth to each other as Hawaiian kids. They really said, well, if this is true and the grace of God has genuinely got a hold of my heart and my life, then it actually is going to affect the way I live when I go back home from this camp, you see. And I saw firsthand God's grace break sin's power in their life and give them a desire for holiness. I literally, I saw some of these boys go home and flush down the toilet, which I don't know if they should have done that, but whatever, hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars worth of drugs. Some of these boys had to break up with relationships with girls that they were involved with. Some of these boys were disowned by their family, really. They said, what are you doing? Do you think you're better than us? Do you think you're, you know, all of a sudden you went to this camp and now you're, you know, Mr. You're God's man? You're not better than us. Often, too, in a broken society, when someone tries to rise up, what, what happens, right? They pull you down, right? You guys know that. But it was, they were going back to this passage. God's grace has appeared in my life and it teaches me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And I saw it. These are boys that are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And then guess what? The next term starts, they're sharing Christ with so many people. And people are actually asking, what happened to you? The grace of God appears. And it teaches me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. You know, th these aren't like, you know, the apostles, okay? <laughs> like, I love these boys. But like I said, like, like you go, wow, that's really cool. These are like, do you remember the boys? Remember the guys, remember I said the, like the three characteristics that they had, right? It's all they knew how to do. And I just watched a radical transformation. Because where God's grace reigns, his grace trains. So grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but also instructs us, though. It's not just negative. It's not just don't, don't, don't. It instructs us to live a certain way. Can you see that in the next part of the verse? If you look at verse 12, he says that we are to live and then describes our life by using three adverbs. Look at verse 12 again, if you finish it off. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Yep, we got that. But then notice these three adverbs. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Not like a, a desire that we hope, like, like now. Like as in the here and the now, as in like today. These three adverbs describe someone who's embraced God's grace. So how do you know you've embraced God's grace? Because you came here years ago, decades ago, and you prayed a prayer once? No. Because you have these three things at least that describe your life. Basically, God's grace has stamped your life in such a way that you, there is evidence of self, relation to others, and relation to God. 
Those are the three things. And when he talks about self, if you look there, he speaks in terms of self-control, in which we have control and are not driven by our sinful desires. Secondly, he speaks of our relation to others when he talks about living upright. That is, we are living with integrity towards those around us. Then, he speaks about living godly in this present age. That is, we are living with devotion to God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You see, how having a firm grasp of grace changes us. It will also cause us to look upward, by the way. He says that we are to live not only with these three things, but to be live looking. Look at verse 13. Looking for what? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great text that just underlines the deity of who Christ is. You ever heard the phrase, though? Uh, um, I've probably said this, but it annoys me when people say it. When you're excited about something and they say, don't hold your breath. It's annoying. Uh, that's a real, you know, dream crusher, right? Um, I have family members that do that. Anyway, that's not what's going on here, though. The, the hope of Christ's return, it's not one of those, you know, don't, you know, don't hold your breath. It's not like that. It's rock solid. We can bank on it because God's grace has appeared in the past. His glory will appear in the future. And by the way, we are the most fortunate people in the world to have this outlook. Do you understand that? We know how the story ends. What hope do you have if you have no meta-narrative, so to speak? You have, no, you have no way, you have no template to look at the world. What hope do you have? Nothing. We know how the story ends, though. Christ comes for his bride. Now, notice, though, he gave himself. Look, look, at, look at these next words in the verse. Who gave himself. You see that there? Still talking about Christ. Our Lord's sacrifice, he gave himself. It's voluntary. He gave himself for us that he might, and this will term redeem, which means to liberate us from lives of wickedness. And then I love this part of the text. To purify for himself a people who are truly his. This, this part of the text really struck me. Who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and notice, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, in the Old Testament, the Lord calls the nation of Israel his treasured possession. For instance, when the Lord redeemed them from bondage in Egypt, what does he do? There they are, standing around in the desert, out in the bush, and God says, all right, gang, huddle up, huddle up. Now that you're free, do what you want, live how you want. You just don't forget that I saved you, okay? Don't forget that I rescued you out of Egypt. Just good, good. Maybe once a year get really emotional and cry about it, but just, you know, but just don't forget it, okay? No. No, listen to Exodus. It's not, not happening at all. Listen to Exodus 19. On the third, day new, on the third new moon of, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. So again, there they are. The Israel, there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? I've redeemed you. I saved you. Now, do whatever seems right in your eyes. No. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my, listen, treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Can you hear what the Lord is saying there? Yes, I have freed you, but I did so in order for you guys to serve and obey me, to be a holy nation. Let me read another text for you. Same idea, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gigarites, the Amorites, you know, the termites, all these, all these bad nations, right? And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Now notice this, verse six. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. You hear that? Israel is to be God's treasured possession. It's pretty clear that they're to be distinct too, by the way. Right? In other words, it's, it's like you're to be my treasured possession but you need to live this way. Does that make sense? Set apart from the rest of the world. Now, some of you can hear that and say, okay, I kind of see where you're headed. That's Israel. But you always talk about context, context, context in this, in this church. So that's Israel, not the church. Sorry, some of you might want to stop me there and say, that's, that's, not, that's not the church. Israel was be, you know, they were redeemed. Fair enough, I get that. And then they were, there's expectations for them to be holy. But that was then and this is now. I mean, come on, we're not Israel. We're not in shackles and need to be rescued. We're the church living in the 21st century. So it's a bit of a stretch to compare Israel with us. Okie dokie. Let's look at verse 14 again. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. Can you hear this Exodus imagery? who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. I'm talking about the church here. A people for his own possession. No, notice this. Who are zealous for good works. Wow. What's the expectation? Zealous for good works. Christ's intent in providing salvation for us was to buy our freedom from slavery to sin and wickedness, right? To, to redeem us out of that, to serve Him, to be His holy people. 
be holy because I am holy. You know what's interesting about this church in Crete is there would have been a pretty well-known slogan, right? Cretans. In fact, if you want to go there to chapter 1, remember, real people, real letter, written to real people, and, and it says one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, chapter 1, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, <laughs> evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> so like, imagine if someone says, Coasties are, right? And then fill in the blank. And then Paul says, and this testimony about them is true. <laughs> Which is just always kind of funny. Like he doesn't go, That's, don't say that. He goes, yeah, you know, this testimony about them is true. And, and yet, these people, they're living in Crete. They would have grown up, well, as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And yet, what does Paul say? If you've really embraced the gospel, you're actually none of those things. You're zealous for good works. Yeah, sure, you might reside in Crete. You might be Greek still. But that's not ultimately what defines you. If grace truly has got a hold of your heart and of your life, where grace reigns, grace trains. And the same would apply for any of us. There, there is no, oh, well, you know, see, but I, I'm, I'm a this or I'm a that or I grew up in this family or I grew up in a that. Where grace reigns, friend, grace trains. If you are truly in Christ, it'll show. We've been crucified with Christ, as Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Amen. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is this church zealous for good works? Do you want to be a part of a church that's zealous for good works? Are you excited about something like that? Does that, or, or are we just going to be a church that speaks loudly about holiness or contra? We condemn sin, but we don't really do a whole lot about it amongst ourselves sort of professional hypocrites. That's who we are. Wyoming Church of Christ, come join us. I don't know about you, but I, I, I look at this pa- passage and I take this seriously. I say the Lord has saved us, not only as individuals, but as a church. And like this church in Crete, here at 299 Henry Perry Drive, or 301 or whatever, whatever we are, we're to be a church that's zealous for good works. You see? Now, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. It's so committed to God, so committed to holiness, that on their own people would never want to join unless the sovereign grace of God is drawing them in, you see. That's what I'm excited about. But how do you know the person in front of you or behind you is just as excited about that? I mean, there are people literally sleeping as I'm speaking right now. Yeah, that's right, go and look around, yeah. So, so like, h- how do you know? 
How, how do we know who's excited for this? Do we just assume it? Do we just hope for it? What about when someone is actually, let's take, let's take it and reverse it. What about when someone's life is not actually marked by a, like denying or rejecting ungodliness and worldly passions? What about when their life is marked by it? Are they still just, you know, what do we do with that? How do we know these things? We have to have some way to formalize this, you see? And you know, the, by God's grace, none of us are holy, do you understand? None of us. That's not the point. We're not trying to be holy to win God's favor. In Christ, we have God's favor. We're just keeping in step with the fact that he saved us. We've been adopted into his family. You know, I, I didn't have a chance, but I wanted to, I know it sounds crazy, I have four kids and I want more, but I, I, April and I wanted to adopt kids. And who knows, maybe we'll do that one day. But if I adopt kids into my family, and I hope to one day, I won't say, oh, it's okay. You can just thrash the place. No, no, no. You can do what you want. You can live up. No, if they come and they be a part of my family, like there's expectations. They're living under my roof, right? April and I are going to nurture them just like we do our kids. They're gonna, we're going to see them as our kids, but uh, with the expectation that they obey, with the expectation that they're, these are the family rules. Church, we, there's family rules. It doesn't save us. But if we're saved, we obey because we love God and the fact that he has saved us and has adopted us into his family, you see? So I, I'm extremely passionate about this. I'd encourage you to have a real good think about this, though, because have you noticed that in many churches, they're just trying to make sure that you, they don't offend you, they don't get your nose out of joint. They're just, they're not calling you to holiness, right? They're saying, just, just what? Oh, good, you're here, you're here, you're okay, good. Well, you know, we'll, we'll come up with a thousand programs, whatever it takes to keep you here. A and I hope you cl hear clearly, both from myself as well as from the elders, that we're saying the Lord's called us to something so much greater than just trying to keep seats warm for people. God, the great God, has called us to a life of holiness. And that's, what we're, that's the direction we want to be moving as a church. We want to be concerned about these things. Why? Because we want to be we want to look great. Yeah, right. We don't look great, especially me. The gospel's great. The gospel is good news. And if we've been changed by that gospel, we, we want to have lives that show it. And we want to be a part of a church like that. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for just your word, how it presses onto us and all the areas that are dark, your, your word shines like a light. It's a light to our feet. Lord, we pray that now as, as we come to this time of communion, remind us, Lord, it's not, it's not our goodness, it's not our good works, it's not, it's not our merits, it's nothing in us that would win approval in your sight. But Lord, if we have been brought into your family by grace through faith, that we'd want to We'd want to follow you. We'd want to obey you. We'd want to have lives of holiness. And not just as individuals, but as a body together as a church. So Lord, as we come around your table now, we pray that you would meet us and assure our hearts of our, of our trust in you. We ask this in Christ's name.